Good morning, Grace Chapel. If you have children today, they're making their way out the far door over here. So the prayers we had this morning with Jason and with Ben for those who are sick in our midst, I have to say in the 16 years I've been here at Grace Chapel, the last week or two, it's unprecedented. I've, it's just amazing. And so I just want to let you know if, if, well, if you're not feeling well, go home. But if you have family members or those who uh, I'm just maybe not aware of, please let me know after the service because I've got a list and there's over 30 names on it. That's not extended. I mean, that's family here at Grace Chapel. There's over 30 names on that list that we'll be praying for this week. And uh, I want to encourage you to to do that because does prayer work? Is that God's plan? Yes, it is. Maybe this is how he draws us to himself. Okay, today, Samson. (laughs) <laughs> you guys, I mean, if you never went to church, and this is your first Sunday in a church, and I said Samson, you probably would have a good idea what I was talking about. Probably. There's a good chance. I, I even think they did a movie. Um, but he's one of the Bible heroes that I definitely remember. Out of all the stories I heard in Sunday school growing up, this guy is one of them. I loved those stories. How about you? I mean, it's like, yes. Like the, I mean, what kid doesn't dream about supernatural strength? All right? Yes. Boy or girl. But, but as I was rereading the story in Judges over the last couple of weeks, uh, I noticed that they sure left out a lot of the details in Sunday school. <laughs> I mean, I just kind of glanced over those, and like, that's the, sto- that's the real story. It's, it's pretty amazing. Samson was a hero of faith. Don't get me wrong. He's mentioned among the heroes of faith in the book of Hebrews with all the others. Um, in Hebrews chapter 11, Samson's in verse 32. But he was a mess. The guy was a mess. Samson is the last of the God-appointed judges that we're going to come across in, in the book of Judges. Uh, we're starting to wind it down as we get towards the end of the book. And he's famous for one particular incident that proved both his downfall and also paved the way to his greatest heroic act. Anybody? What was the incident that was his downfall? Come on, just call it out. Yeah, this is, yeah he got his hair cut off. By who? Another name that if I called it out, and this is your first Sunday in church, you would have gone, Delilah. (laughs) Yeah. But his story is more than that one incident. In Samson, we see the flaws of God's people between the time of Joshua and the time that's coming right after the book of Judges, the monarchy where God appoints kings. They are the same flaws that we see in every age of the history of this planet from the Garden of Eden until God inaugurates a new Jerusalem that comes down out of the sky where we live with our God forever. But probably more significant than that, they are our own flaws today. Does anybody here identify with Samson? And even the small, or you're like, no, he was so bad and I'm so bad. 
And in Samson, we see wonderful hints. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing when you stop to look at his story. Wonderful, wonderful hints of what a perfect judge and a perfect Savior is supposed to look like. Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is going to come, he's, and he has come, and he's going to come again, whose salvation we're going to remember in communion in just a few moments. With the beginning of this last cycle, we're told, as usual, the familiar phrase. You've heard it over and over and over again. It's in chapter 13, verse 1. Here it comes. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, how many times do we have to hear this? Well, this is the last time <laughs> for this part, part of Judges. And then there's the very familiar results that God gives them over to their enemies because they were doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in this case, it's the Philistines. The Philistines. And this is also the last time the phrase, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, appears. It's pretty interesting. It's replaced by another phrase we're going to hear two times throughout the rest of the book, meaning the same thing, but it's said in a different way, just so you and I get the point. In those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Same thing, different way, different spin on it. And I want to make two observations because this is the heart of the book. Two similar phrases. First, in our present world today, it is continually asserted uh, in innumerable forums and venues and even in movies that only you can define what's right and wrong for you. Have you heard that before? Have you ever lived that way? Probably. I even hear that philosophy in church circles. And we looked at one of those philosophies that you hear in the church just recently when we went through our, our series last year on uh, myths that Christians believe. And it was this one. Follow your heart. Remember that? I know our hearts are sinful, selfish, and desperately wicked, but follow your heart. Go ahead, knock yourself out, because you probably will. In other words, your own eyes, your own heart's feelings, your own mind's perceptions of reality are the only way to determine right and wrong. Really. You know, even common sense contradicts this. Even if we didn't have the Bible that God has left us, the Bible is our, is our standard for truth. It, it, the common sense contradicts this idea. If evil is only determined by our own eyes, how could any of us in this room tell the Nazis in World War II that it was wrong to exterminate Jews? Because if you read the history books, they thought they were doing the human race a favor. They thought that they were providing justice for, albeit past, imagined wrongs that the Jews had perpetrated on society. So, okay. So what if we admit today, all of us here, that our own eyes are not sufficient for defining sin? Can I get an amen? Can I, get, can I get a hand that says, Pete, I will admit that. 
my own eyes are not sufficient for defining sin. And we got right. And if you're watching online, you put your hand up. Go ahead. It feels good. Okay, then, if we all admit that, whose eyes are? Is evil defined by what is perceived to be evil in the expert's eyes? Whoever that happens to be for you. Is it in the eyes of the majority? Uh, Okay, if it's the majority, then let's vote on it. Let's vote on what is evil and what is good as a society, and the majority wins, and that rules. Uh, Let's let our representatives in Washington pass a law on it. Well, you know, that's how abortion became legalized. The views of the majority, the views of the governing elite, don't seem to avoid holocausts. Whether it's a despised people group or unwanted children, we here believe at Grace Chapel that the Bible's answer is always the right answer, that God's eyes are always the right eyes, that sin is defined as you and I violating our relationship with God, that sin is defined as violating the declared will of God that is so clear as presented in Scripture. What God sees as sin is sin. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really straightforward. Regardless of what you and I feel, regardless of what the experts say, and regardless of what culture agrees on. God's word trumps it all. Second, second, that was just one observation. Okay, second one. These phrases, both of them, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They show us the deception of sin. Israel was deceived. You and I are so easily deceived. We are reminded at how easily self-deceived we can be when it's something we really want to do, when it's something we really want to have. The Israelites had psychologically and culturally made up all kinds of rationalizations and supports for their sin, no doubt. So they, they were in a kind of a, a group denial, right, as a nation. Um, they, they had developed kind of this support group for sin. They were encouraging each other to sin. Oh, it's not that bad. You should see what I did last week. And we have those support groups today. They're all around us. You've got them at work. You might even have them in your home. They're all over the place today. You know, I really like that church over there because they never talk about sin. I just love it. I go to church, and I never, ever feel guilty about what I did last week. It's awesome. you you got to go. you got to try it out. Um, like, it's like I never, ever screw up. It's, it's the greatest. I, I leave there feeling so good about myself. In their own eyes or through their own perceptions, there was nothing wrong with what they were doing as a nation. They, there was this deep, suppressed knowledge 
that they were out of touch with God, that they were rejecting God's clear uh, will, declared. It reminds me of Romans 1.18. Have you noticed that as we go through Judges, I often go back and quote from Romans chapter 1? It's like a parallel passage for the whole mess. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's present tense. Who by their unrighteousness, what do we do? We always suppress the truth, especially when it's convenient for us. But at a conscious level, they had no overt guilt. This is a dangerous place to be. They, they had lots of explanations for their lifestyles. I'm sure if you'd asked the Israelite, if you asked somebody in America today, well, I'm in debt because, all kinds of excuses. I, I cheated on my tax return because I slept with that person because I won't reach out and help that particular kind of person because. Or there's the famous and oft-quoted phrase we like to use, I just can't help it. I'm stuck. We don't know what the Israelites' rationale and rationalizations were specifically. But we do know from reading the text that the heart of their sin and the heart of your sin and my sin is idolatry. That's clear. And idols are not always bad things. But often, more often, they're good things that you and I have turned into our ultimate hope or goal in life. So the fine line between work, hard work, and making an idol out of your work, or, or loving your family, and making an idol out of your family is a very thin line. And an idol is by its very nature deceitful. It tells, tells us that we're being sensible, we're being loving, we're being careful and wise to work so hard, even when we're being selfish about it. We have set whatever it is that is an idol in your life before God in our hearts, and we're doing evil in the eyes of the only one in the entire universe whose eyes really count. Samson. Okay, you wondered. Yeah, we're, we're talking about Samson. This is all about Samson. It's a backdrop to the whole book of Judges. Samson is the only judge chosen before he is born, actually chosen before he's even conceived. Isn't that, awesome? Isn't that amazing? I mean, I just, his mother in, in chapter 13, verse 2, we read, is sterile and remained childless. But the angel of the Lord comes to her. There's the angel of the Lord again, who we see throughout the whole book of Judges. The angel of the Lord is the real Savior, I believe, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And the angel of the Lord in chapter 13, verse 3 says, you are going to conceive and have a son. Have you heard that phrase before in the Bible? If you've been coming to church for any length of time, you hear this often, actually, through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And she's cautioned here. He says, well, here's the deal. You're going to have this son, 
even though you can't have children, but you are not to drink any grapes, anything from the fruit of the vine. Alcohol, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, doesn't matter. Can't drink it. You can't eat anything unclean, as has been stated in the laws of God. And you can't cut his hair. Because this son, verse 5, is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The Nazarite vow was found in Numbers chapter 6. It's like the first 21 verses. And it contained three, ba three basic stipulations. A Nazarite was not to cut their hair over a specific period of time of the vow. They were not to drink any produce from vines, alcoholic or non-alcoholic. And they were not to have contact with any dead body. So I'm like, well, the, the, the last one's the easiest one. <laughs> like, like, I'd like to help you guys out right now, but I can't touch that. I mean, you're going to have to do that yourself. Can't do it. I'm drink, while I'm drinking my water, right, and watching you guys do it. Why? Because the purpose for someone taking the Nazarite vow was to ask God for special help and assistance during a very crucial time. It was a sign that you were looking to God, that you were focusing on God more than usual, with great intensity. Intensity. And Numbers chapter 6 is also very clear. The Nazarite vow was made voluntarily and for a definite period of time. But Samson is being born a Nazarite. So think about this. He's being born into a Nazarite state involuntarily. So like he could really say, I didn't ask for to be born like this. <laughs> Kids say that sometimes. I didn't ask to be born. His parents were making the vow for him. And he was to stay a Nazarite his entire life. It's not for a set period of time. It's like, okay, you're a Nazarite from the day you were born to the day you die. So think about that pressure. Even his mother uh, is not to drink the wine or the unclean foods. Samson is declared by God to be a Nazarite, set apart for God, while he's still in his mother's womb. Do you remember Sarah, Abraham's wife? Could not become pregnant. And then she heard the angel of the Lord say to her husband, Abram, that Sarah's going to conceive and bear a son. What did she do? She laughed. Genesis 18. When an angel of the Lord in the New Testament came to John the Baptist's father and said that your barren wife is going to have a son, he did not believe. Samson's mother shows faith in the Lord's ability to do the impossible. It's in Judges 13. And the woman went to her husband right after the angel of the Lord experience and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. And he said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Isn't this exciting? She believed the word of God, delivered through the messenger of God, just as a woman 12,000 years later would by the name of Mary. And Mary's response to the angel of the Lord in Luke 1.38, be to me as you have said. In other words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Samson grows up. He's blessed by God. 
cool start of the story. And we read in verse 25 that God's Spirit begins to work in him. But at the same time, we start to discover that the story of Samson is famous to a lot of people for its potent mix of sex, violence, power, and death. (laughs) It's like a modern-day action film is what it is. But many in the church, many Christians find it to be perplexing and probably really disturbing. As Israel's spiritual condition continues on that downward spiral, it gets worse and worse. The the scene seems to be set for this conquering hero to come, uh, this great judge and leader, perhaps the greatest of all time, and deliver them. And as chapter 13 began with that annunciation by the angel of the Lord of this special deliverer to come, we're we're kind of prepared for this wonderful, powerful deliverer and savior. Instead, we find the most flawed character in the entire book. He's violent. He's impulsive. He's sexually addicted. He's emotionally immature. And he's really selfish. Sound like anybody you know? Never mind. Most disturbing of all, here's the thing that gets Christians. It says that the Spirit of God anoints him. The Spirit of God seems to anoint and use his fits of anger and his temper and his pride. One commentator said of Samson, impulsive and unteachable. It's a good summary for the state of Israel as a whole. It's kind of like you get what you deserve. You can read, you can meditate. You can pray and grow in these stories yourself. I'm just going to hit some of the highlights before we go to communion. And I hope that we can grow and learn together by just looking at a few of these. When when, when you take in Samson's entire story, it's over a number of chapters, you begin to discern that Israel's capitulation to the the Philistine conquerors, overlords, was probably far more profound and complex than any of the previous enslavements we've been reading about. In the past, when it got bad, what did Israel do? They groaned and they agonized under the occupation of the pagan powers and God delivered. But now, we find the people are virtually unconscious that they're even enslaved. It's like, it's kind of like, this is just the way it is. And we're, I mean, it's okay. There's almost this cultural accommodation The Israelites don't groan, and they don't resist their captors. There's no battles going on. There's no underground or terrorism or anything like that because they have completely adopted and adapted to the values and even the idols of the Philistines. And like Samson himself, they're eager to marry into Philistine society, probably it's a way to move up in the culture. Philistines actually live in Israelite cities. It's not like there's, there's the Philistine city, here's an Israelite city. They're intermingling, like they live together. Exactly what God told them not to do, but they're doing it. They no longer, Israel had no longer had a recognizable culture of their own. They're indistinguishable from the Philistines. Their culture was supposed to be one based on service to God alone. So when Samson starts killing Philistines, 
and he does it by the hundreds with this amazing strength from God, the men of the tribe of Judah actually come to him and they say, our next great judge, we will follow you. No. They ask him to give himself up to the Philistines and let us tie you up and deliver you to the Philistines so that we'll look good. It's like, you know, he's disrupting the status quo and they don't like it. So what does God do? What does God do when his people, when you and I at times, are not just accommodating, but we're actually being assimilated into the world? Verse 4 of chapter 14 is a crucial verse in Samson's story. It may even be the key to understanding the whole story and even the whole book of Judges and answer that question I just asked. Samson goes to an Israelite city, and there's a Philistine girl living there, and he wants to marry her. Uh, his father disagrees and says, you can't do that, but he goes ahead anyway. And in verse 4, here's what we read. His parents did not know that this, Samson's overriding desire to marry this Philistine girl, was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. It's black and white. It's what it says. We can't make it say something else. God does use the very weaknesses of Samson, his sexual appetite, his vindictiveness, and his temper to bring about confrontation after confrontation between the two nations. That's never an excuse for our sin. You can't say, well, God's going to use this for his glory. I can go ahead and do it anyway. You're missing the whole point. You will bear, even as a child of God, horrific consequences for that kind of attitude and disobedience. Samson did. But Samson's weaknesses result in this blood feud between the two nations. It's exactly what God wanted. It leads to more and more conflict and finally to division between these two nations that later King Saul and King David are going to mop up and take care of. As the story goes on, it actually gets a lot worse. And we see everyone acting out of their own ungodly character. And they're all responsible for what they do before God but we also see God using all of it to ensure that the two nations are alienated despite Samson's and even Judah's best efforts because <laughs> God always wins. And God remains unconditionally committed to his covenantal promise that he made to Israel. He had promised to love them, and he had promised to give them an inheritance. Back, way back in chapter 2, verse 1, this is how the book began. God goes, says, I said, I will never break my covenant with you. He means that. My salvation is secure. There's no power on earth that can break that. 
So here God is so faithful to his promises that he not only fulfills his promises, like he said, in spite of their sin, he even does it through their sin. He uses their own sinfulness to bring about his deliverance. Has God acted this way at other times? Consider the death and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Crucified by sinners to cover the sins of sinners. Not the way I would have done it. The supreme example is given in in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the first sermon to the church. And the apostle Peter tells us that God used the deliberate, wicked choices of human beings to put Jesus to death, thereby redeeming human beings from deliberate, wicked choices. Though the people who put Jesus to death were doing so wickedly, knowingly, God arranged things so that their wickedness only fulfilled his redemptive purposes. So strange, though it seems, you and I serve a a God of mercy. And he uses people's weaknesses to make sure there is no peace between them and the world. We, God's people today, cannot be at peace with this world. The church is desperately trying to do that all across the nation. James 4.4 says, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Duh! (laughs) I mean, there it is. Why? Because if you and I are like the world, we will eventually love and find our hope and meaning in idols and forsake God happens every time. It's a 100% guarantee. We will, as James puts it in that same verse, become adulterous people. It is through the mercy of God that he does not allow the world to love the church for very long. Why do they hate us? because that's the way God made it. The world's hatred towards followers of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the only way, forces you and I to recognize that we are not part of this world. And we never will be. We have a different Lord, Master. And we have a very different Savior. Our hope is in something entirely foreign to this planet. And then we finally cry out to him when we realize this fact to rescue us from ourselves. And God rule us despite ourselves. Our problem is not flesh and blood as much as we complain about it. It's a spiritual battle. So here's some interesting questions in the Samson story. Why can Samson kill a lion with his bare hands. Anybody? Verse 6, chapter 14, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. Okay, I can buy that. Why is Samson able to strike down 30 Philistine men in order to steal their clothes to pay for a bet he foolishly lost? 
You know what the answer is? Verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. God is giving Samson superhuman strength. It's the one thing that God uses, other than Samson's own character flaws, for God to cause division between Israel and the world. Which God's people, even though they don't realize it, desperately need. And I know what some of you are thinking. How can God use such flawed people like Samson to get his work done? Shouldn't God only work with people who are really good, godly men and women like us? You should be laughing now. Shouldn't God only use the people who have the right beliefs and the right behavior flowing out of those right beliefs like us? Not the church down the street, (laughs) but this church, right? Because we've got the corner on truth. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The problem with that kind of thinking, which is pretty prevalent even in the church, is that it puts God in a box. Do you like God in a box? I can look at him from every angle and every side, and I got, it, I got him figured out. I, I, I don't have any questions that are on it. I mean, everything is just, it's wonderful. Look at that. There's God. It would mean that God is limited by humans. Is that the kind of God you worship? That he's limited by us in any stretch of the imagination? It would mean that God is only allowed to work when people are being good and making godly choices. Well, then he's never going to work. I'm sorry, self-righteous one. It would mean that God does not work by grace that he does not take the initiative to save us every time, every time, that we've never saved ourselves, but that God works in response to our good works, waiting for people to help and save themselves. No. The amazing truth is that God works through sinners. The amazing truth is that God works through even sinful situations to accomplish His redemptive purposes for you and for me. He keeps His promises to bless His people in the dark and disastrous periods of our lives, and we all have them. And if you haven't, it's coming. You came here for good news. (laughs) But He also keeps His promises through the times when things seem to be going well. Not even our own sin will keep God from saving or from using who he created, you and me. It's often unseen, don't you find? And then you look back at a situation or something that went on in your life or someone else's, you go, I see what God was doing there. Didn't see it when it was in my face. And usually it's far beyond our comprehension. For me, it's that he even cared. With all the big things going on in the world, God cared about that little thing. God works through the very often flawed choices of his kids. Romans 8, 28, in all things, God works for the good 
of those who love him. And that brings us to communion. To share in the good news of Jesus Christ, his death,